Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 443. And I'm just going to tell you right now, Sarah and I are like <gasps> little lumps, <laughs> little lumps in our throats um, as we jump into part three of the COVID nineteen vaccines. We are covering myths and your questions. Before we jump in, I just want to say I, I think I said this last week as well. It's all kind of running together at this point because we've had a lot of offline discussions. Um, for you listeners who have reached out to tell us um, how helpful the science has been and how you appreciate the perspective of, you know, us giving you an informed decision to make yourself. Um, Thank you for understanding where we're coming from. Thank you for being part of this community and being supportive. Thank you for your positive reviews to balance out the loud discontent of a very small minority. Um, and I just I just want to give a shout out to Sarah because I know that this has not been easy and I know that you have done an incredible amount of research and reading to really come at this from a perspective of knowledge and sharing and not from, well, I read this one thing on this one social media platform, you know, and um, I just I I appreciate you and I know how much of a burden this has been to absorb all of this feedback or questions and all of this kind of stuff and then turn that into um, something positive for our listeners. So I just want to thank you, listeners. Thank you, Sarah. I'm just here to be a hype cheerleader this <laughs> week. I don't have much to add except for the fact that I added a whole lot of questions from social media just a couple of days ago. <laughs> and I could literally feel Sarah smack me through the text message. <laughs> uh, it was the timing of it because I, um, you know, as you said, these shows have been, um, I, you know, it's normally... Uh, you know, a day or two to do all the research and, and prep a science deep dive type show. And these have been a lot more than that. So, you know, three, four, five days of doing nothing but research in order to make sure that I really understand the whole picture so that I can present that data in a balanced and as objective way possible for our listeners. Because the idea behind these shows is not to tell people whether or not to get a vaccine, but to arm them with facts and information. And so, um, yes, I believe uh, uh, it's a good thing I didn't text the first thing that I said when I saw your text, because it was not appropriate to send to somebody that you care about. Um, but it was just the timing because I thought I was done. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, there's more questions. And they were really good questions. I incorporated them. This is going to, I think, be a fairly long show. But I think it's also really important to um, honor that there's like loose ends that need to be wrapped up, that there's concerns that people still have, and that there's just uh, like myths and conspiracy theories that I don't want to um, – you know, breathe air into or give life by acknowledging. But at the same time, I really feel like it's our responsibility to, um, to 
rebut those types of uh, that type of misinformation and in some cases disinformation with facts. And in, in large part, the reason why I included myths and conspiracy theory type stuff in this show um, that is mostly an FAQ show is because I know these things are really pervasive and our listeners have friends and family members who uh, are reading this, aren't sure what to believe, or maybe believe it and are spreading it. And I want to give our listeners information to, at least in your sphere where you have influence, be able to spread that, you know, fact and information, um, because that is that is how we can combat misinformation. Is well, by... those are myths, for sure. I mean, yes. from my perspective, for I sure. would call those myths. And I, I also just want to say... Everyone has um, their own research and opinions and different things that you've heard. We're, we are here to present facts and science. Nothing that we're going to say is going to be opinion-based that is not backed up by fact and science. Um, the, Sarah has a phrase, and I mentioned Sarah says so, uh, Sharon says so previously, um, you know, the science doesn't really care your opinion of it and the truth doesn't care your opinion of it. It's just, it's facts, it's science. And so I know that some of these things might not be what you like and, and we're not here to tell you what you like or what you don't like, but it it is what it is. And so I do, I just, I want everyone to remember we're all on the same team. We all want a healthy, a healthy life. We all want to be done with the pandemic. And I think when we come at this from the perspective of removing emotion as much as we, as we can, and then being like, okay, let me, let me try to hear what the facts are and make informed decisions. That's what we're here to do. We have a whole show dedicated to Um, the scientific method and looking at sources. And so if you want to dive into any of the linked referenced sources that we include in our show notes, um, you can also go back, we'll link that show for you so that you can, um, you know, be more educated on kind of how to interpret some of those sources if you'd like. And um, yeah, that's, I just, I just want to put a little disclaimer. The other disclaimer is that we are not medical professionals. We cannot not give medical advice. So keep that in mind. Um, I did get quite a few people asking me, do you think I should get the vaccine? I'm sure you have as well, Sarah. <laughs> and we cannot do that. Yep. We cannot tell you that. So um, take this information that you are learning or hearing in this show. Take that referenced source document. Don't take our show, right? Take that source to your medical professional and say, can you help me further understand how this applies to me? What do you think is right for me with a trusted medical professional? That's the only advice that I can give you. <laughs> so uh, it's also worth emphasizing that all of the research papers, the FDA reports, all of the science that I'm drawing on is all full uh, free public access um, journal articles, and we are putting links to all of the source material in the show notes. So we're also making it easy for you to get the source material and take it to your medical professional. So it will all, all of the links to all of the relevant sources will be in the show notes. Awesome. Well, we have a lot to cover. So let's jump in. Let's start with uh, centering ourselves on where we are in terms of um, what we've what we've covered so far. So in part one, we talked about the like history of vaccines, vaccine induced injury, 
um, and how the mRNA vaccine platform differs and then the science that that's sort of based on. And then in part two, we talked specifically about the safety and efficacy data um, on the Pfizer, BioNTech, and the Moderna COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. And I want to take a moment to sort of honor all of the positive feedback that we've had um, on those two long, thoroughly researched, um, and I will uh, own stressful for me episodes. So our Patreon fam have been the most awesome, awesome, awesome people. And I, I, I at one point was like, I'm going to read every single one of our Patreon fans comments in this show. And then I realized that that was silly. Um, but let me read a couple of them. So this is from Shirley. I can't thank you enough for your last episode. I have been vaccine hesitant simply because it's been so impossible to get answers to questions. I'm really looking forward to the next episode for more on this topic. Thank you again for everything. And Jan wrote, thank you so much for tackling the subject. I have been undecided about whether or not to take the vaccine. And when people asked me about it, I said, I'm waiting to hear what Dr. Sarah Ballantyne has to say before making a decision. Thanks again for presenting the science facts in a day when we are being bombarded with misinformation. Hugs. I want to emphasize, Jan, I'm not making a recommendation, just presenting the information, just the facts. I would say that hugging, probably not recommend it. <laughs> Virtual hugs. Virtual hugs totally. only. <laughs> totally. Um, and this is from social. Um, so this is from, I don't know how to read handles, Treadjo127. How would you read that handle? I think that's fair. Sure. Uh, you are so awesome for doing this. Seriously, I'm promoting science-based research to help the people who are vaccine-hesitant understand it better and be able to feel empowered to make an informed decision is not only a huge gift to them, but to our entire society. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And then all the nice emojis. Yes, good, good, good emojis. Um, and Elena Beth Archer wrote, we listened to these podcasts excitedly because we wanted information to make our decision. My spouse is in healthcare and want to know the science of why these could be produced so fast and how emergency authorizations work in terms of safety data. This info was provided to us free of charge by two people who care deeply about science. My spouse is on the list for it now because he just wanted to understand the science, as did I, but much less pressing for me because I am way down the list in terms of when I will be eligible. So thank you, Stacy and Sarah. We heart you. I love hearing people say that they appreciate the information that they can use to make their own decisions. That is our goal. And that is going to be a theme for today. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. All right. So let's get into the, the frequently asked questions. I mean, I don't think there's a single question in this show that hasn't been asked by like multiple dozens of people. Um, so if I didn't read your version of the question... It, it's it's someone else beat you to it, and I copied and pasted it in here first. Um, but this question is from Kristen on Patreon. Hi, Stacy and Sarah. Love you too, and hoping this is the right place to ask questions. I'm just going to butt in and say Patreon is the best place to ask questions. <laughs> it is the place that we went to first. So if you're not already catching us on Patreon, you're you're missing the what we really think about a show. And there's honestly a, more information and follow up in those shows. So, um, but it's also a really great place to connect with us directly for those people that are like, what, why do you keep saying Patreon? Because it's Patreon, it's our family. Our family's over there, except for not our actual family, because 
they're like, I support you enough. Why do I need to join your Patreon? Yeah, I'm pretty sure my family's <laughs> not over there. <laughs> All right. Uh, Kristen's question continues. I have a follow-up question about the COVID vaccines. If asymptomatic cases of the disease are possible once vaccinated, would that mean there's potential for long-term effects being seen in some of the asymptomatic cases that would also be possible post-vaccine, like lung damage, et cetera? Um, and actually, I wanted to wrap in a question from social from Katie Butt. I think that's how you would say that. Um, uh, this question is, I listened to both podcasts and it definitely eased some of my hesitancies. The thing I'm still trying to understand is how the vaccine will lead to herd immunity. They say you still need to wear a mask and social distance after you receive the shot because you could still spread the virus. So how is getting the vaccine going to stop the spread? I think this is like the number one thing that I'm I'm glad we're tackling first. I actually went to the eye doctor with a kid yesterday and they have really great requirements and stuff there. Um, and there was a elderly gentleman who came in after me that refused to do some of the things that they were asking people to do. And he was like, but I've had the vaccine. And I was like, someone needs to give him this information that you're about to answer right now. Because yeah. I'm like, this is why you need to still do that. So I, I'm going to start with at Katie Butt's question first and kind of work my way backwards into Kristen's question. So uh, with the vaccine, there are multiple different possible outcomes that would all be considered positive and that would all help us get to the other side of this pandemic. So uh, one possible outcome would be just preventing disability and death. So that is um, preventing um, you know, the complications that we're seeing, right? Um, avoiding people being on ventilators, which can cause uh, what's called ventilator-induced lung injury, which can be a really, really long, slow recovery process, um, preventing people from dying from this disease. Um, that is a positive outcome. If we can basically, if the vaccine can turn this into something that's like a common cold, that is a good outcome. Um, the other piece of that would be easing the burden on the healthcare system. So one of the things that's so challenging right now, um, and it's not going to be something that we fully understand probably for years, and it's going to be a you know big you know process of trying to understand of how many people have died in this past year from something preventable. Um, you know, they could have been saved. Um, but the reason why they died is because the healthcare system was overwhelmed. They either didn't go to an emergency room when they should have because they didn't want to catch COVID or um, they didn't get the level of care that they needed because the healthcare workers are being pushed to the edge. Um, you know, there's not enough beds there. Like it's, it's a, you know, we've got, we're going to have a, a challenge that we're going to, you know, we don't need to think about this now, but you know, we've got, healthcare workers with PTSD from this past year. Um, and that's going to be a whole thing at some point in the future when we can take a step back and just see the strain that this pandemic has put on those people, not just the system, but the people. Um, so that is another, right? If we can, if the, the vaccines can keep people out of the hospital, we can ease the strain on the healthcare system. Um, and that is a fantastic outcome, right? So preventing people from dying or having long-term disabilities and preventing them from needing um, hospitalization or, you know, the intensive care unit, sort of extensive care that is so, um, pe like, people-hour consuming, right? It's, it takes 
for people to just turn a patient, um, to put them on their stomach so that they can oxygenate better, right? That is, it is so much work to take care of each COVID person in the ICU. Um, and then the other aspect about this is if we can, if the vaccines could turn um, the COVID-19 into something that's mild, like a common cold, that's going to ease the burden on the economy because there's going to be, um, we're going to be able to like open back schools and businesses, right? Like if it's, if it's a, um, if it doesn't have the risk associated with it. So that is, that would be a situation where the vaccines provide personal protection, but not really herd immunity because it's not stopping the spread. It's just turning COVID-19 into something mild and livable. Um, so that is one possible outcome that would be still at this point where we don't have really good treatments for COVID-19, right? Like that would still be an amazing outcome. Um, we, we don't actually need to achieve herd immunity um, to, to be able to have a positive outcome from the vaccines. However, in this case, you're talking about personal protection. So you would want to be vaccinating close to 100% of people. On the flip side, what we're really hoping for is that we do achieve herd immunity so that um, this virus can't continue to spread. It eventually diminishes. It can't find someone to live in and it goes the way of smallpox. That would be like the ideal situation. That is what we get with, if these vaccines are able to actually stop infection and stop people from being contagious, even if they have asymptomatic cases. So the reason why we're saying right now, continue to wear a mask, continue to social distance, even after you've had the vaccines, is that we don't actually have the data um, as robustly as we need to be able to conclusively say these vaccines uh, prevent infection, prevent you from being contagious. If you've been vaccinated, you're good to go. We don't know that yet. However, it is being tested. Um, Moderna is actually recruiting right now college-age students for a um, clinical trial that will test exactly that. Um, and even though we're going to talk about the AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines in a future show, once all of the data is released and we can... <laughs> actually see all of the information that we need to put together a fact-based show like these ones. We'll cover them in the, in the future. I do want to mention that um, the AstraZeneca um, Oxford University vaccine actually did more frequent testing of their trial participants. So we, we, have, we actually have some data showing that um, these vaccines do seem to actually reduce asymptomatic cases. It's preliminary data. We need more robust trials and more testing to be able to really say this conclusively. Until we can say this conclusively, please continue to wear a mask and socially distance after you've been vaccinated, if you choose to get vaccinated. However, this is exciting data. So let's let's talk about this. So um, the early analysis from the AstraZeneca vaccine showed that it was about 59% effective at stopping asymptomatic infection. This was in their subgroup that was the same subgroup that had uh, accidentally got a half dose for their first injection and a full dose for their second and had higher efficacy than the trial as a whole. So their total efficacy in that subgroup was 90%. Um, that was one of those like interesting accidents. They're actually now doing a whole new trial with that um, half dose followed by a full dose to see if they have better um, 
uh, efficacy overall. Um, and they also were able to look at um, symptomatic viral transmission. So they're looking at um, virus shedding. And they showed that um, after the first dose, when they tested before the second dose, that they were able to see about a 67% reduction in symptomatic transmission of the virus. Now, again, that's sort of a small sample size. We need to expand. That wasn't the primary thing they were trying to measure in this trial. It was a safety and efficacy phase two, three trial. Um, but that's really exciting preliminary data because it shows that at least the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a different platform, um, is reducing asymptomatic infection as well as symptomatic transmission. So that is what gets us to herd immunity from the vaccines. And actually, we have a little bit of preliminary data from the Moderna trial um, that sort of confirms this. So one of the things that Moderna did was they screened, they did a, um, a COVID-19 uh, PCR test in between the first and the second dose. So like right before the second dose. Um, and there were people who contracted COVID in, in between the first and second dose. And what they actually found was that there was two thirds fewer people in the vaccine group who tested positive compared to the placebo. So again, you know, that wasn't the primary goal of the phase two, three trials. Um, but it's, it's good news, right? We have some preliminary data that indicates that these vaccines actually um, are effective at reducing um, asymptomatic infection as well as symptomatic transmission, and that's what gets us to herd immunity. We just, we're at a point now where we need more data to be able to conclusively say that. I think specific to Kristen's question, I am curious about these um, asymptomatic, and I'm, I'm using quotation marks because I, I don't even know if that's what the science is going to I think that's what we're assuming right now, right? But I'll be interested to see what these additional studies and everything are coming up with um, mm -hmm. in terms of long-term damage. I, like, for example, having had personal experience with this, um, with a very mild slash asymptomatic case, um, I talked extensively about how I was still monitoring my oxygen levels and how even though I felt fine, I would be able to see my oxygen decrease, which is why I suggested breathing exercises to like everyone I talk to is like mm -hmm. really focus on those. So um, I'm curious, I mean, in this case, if you had the vaccine and you were asymptomatic, you, you probably aren't getting tested and probably don't even know. And so therefore, you're not measuring oxygen levels or doing these exercises. Like, um, I guess, what is the science saying in terms of how that presents itself? either presently or long-term, or do we even know yet? So we certainly have some indications from the clinical trials. Um, you know, this is a tougher thing to monitor in the general population because, again, if you feel fine, you're not likely to go out and get a COVID-19 test. Um, so let's let's first sort of decipher that there's, there's two different uh, sort of long-term outcomes that we're talking about here. And we're kind of lumping them together, but I think it's important to separate them out because we need to do that to look at the data. So one thing is long COVID, um, which uh, most of the researchers now believe is either chronic fatigue syndrome or um, something kind of under that umbrella. Maybe it's a new thing, um, but it, it looks a lot like chronic fatigue syndrome. So chronic fatigue syndrome is an autoimmune disease that is well known to have infectious triggers. Approximately 90% of chronic fatigue syndrome can be traced back to 
a infectious triggering event. And it has a broad range of symptoms, which is what we're hearing from long COVID. So most commonly things like fatigue, joint pain, muscle pain, um, inability to exercise, malaise, confusion, forgetfulness, lack of concentration, brain fog, excess sleepiness, sleep disturbances, anxiety, apprehension, depression, headaches, muscle weakness, sensitivity to pain, and sore throat. Um, and one of the things we're seeing with long COVID is also GI symptoms, um, which could be traced. There's interestingly some data showing that COVID can cause um, gut dysbiosis. So it could be tied in with chronic fatigue syndrome, or it could be its own separate thing. Um, but with chronic fatigue, you know, we we tend to recognize it in its severe cases, but it can actually be something very mild. It can cycle with menstruation. Um, so it can sort of come and go. Um, it, it really is a very wide spectrum in terms of severity. So that's what's thought to be like one of the possible outcomes um, is this, you know, infectious disease triggered autoimmune disease. Also, it's worthwhile noting that um, it doesn't, because it's an infectious trigger, it's a little bit different than um, other autoimmune diseases that um, in that chronic fatigue syndrome can be self-limiting. Um, so it's not necessarily something that's going to stick around forever, um, but it might be a couple of years. So that that type of um, time frame is fairly common. So that's one thing that's going on in terms of long-term problems even associated with mild cases or even asymptomatic cases. The other one is tissue damage. Um, and this there's the direct damage that's sort of caused by things like being on a ventilator that's, you know, or uh, throwing a clot, right, um, and having it destroy your kidneys, right? So there's the, the tissue damage associated with severe cases, but there's also been a number of studies that have shown, right, like myocarditis in a very large percentage of people even with mild COVID. Um, and this this type of damage to um, even the the COVID pneumonia is thought potentially to, to originate in what are called microclots. So it looks like COVID impacts the cells that produce clotting factors, and this changes um, how our blood clots. Um, so we're basically throwing these like little tiny embolisms all over the body. And this is thought to be probably what is behind all of the different potential complications, you know, from lung injury to myocarditis to brain injury to kidney injury to COVID toe. Like all of that can be explained through these microclots. Um, so those are like two whole separate mechanisms. It's two whole separate things. Um, and even, you know, I mentioned like the scary word myocarditis, even though it, it seems to be occurring in a fairly large percentage of people, it is considered mild in most cases and something that just takes some months to recover from. So I also don't want to be like scary, like, you know, the high, I mean, COVID does have a high mortality and a high morbidity rate. That's why it's such a horrible thing. That's why we're all stuck in our homes, but it's not like everybody who gets it is going to have you know, heart disease forever. So I don't want to, I, I don't want to scare people with, with data that's not properly put into context. So um, looking at the possibility of long COVID, sort of something like chronic fatigue syndrome, post-vaccine, um, you know, one of the things that they're, you know, all of those types of symptoms are, are things that they measured um, in the clinical trials. There were 
no reports of symptoms like, you know, fatigue is sort of like a normal headaches. Um, anxiety can be like, those can be normal immune activation after an injection, but they didn't see those symptoms after about a week following the injection. Um, so there's, there was nothing in their, um, two month follow-up data that would indicate anything that looks like chronic fatigue syndrome. And in uh, the United States, we've vaccinated a little over 33 million people now. Um, most of them haven't gotten their second vaccine, so we're still early, but we don't even have anecdotal reports of the media of anything that looks like chronic fatigue syndrome. So it, it really right now looks like it's um, it, that's not something that's going to be happening. Um, but it is, again, one of the reasons why there's ongoing monitoring. Um, there's ongoing, uh, everyone in the clinical trials will be monitored and tested and do their follow-up surveys and all of those things for two years. And, um, and eventually I think it's like at the six month data point, they can apply to go from emergency use authorization to just full drug approval with the FDA. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're, they're doing community monitoring as well. So if that comes up, we will definitely talk about it on the podcast, but right now there's absolutely no indication that it's happening. Um, I just, I just also want to say we heard from a number of people who have participated in the trials and who are healthcare professionals kind of administering stuff and both Sarah for your benefit and for listeners. Thank you to all those people who reached out and, basically concurred and validated mm -hmm. the information that you've been sharing and saying how impressed the people were that were part of these trials on how closely they were being monitored and giving feedback and how long they're being tasked to um, provide that information. So I know oftentimes we hear one of the concerns or the myths with vaccines is, you know, there's concern that it was rushed. And, you know, I talked about my hesitancy with that, which is why I appreciated the first show so much, so much in kind of understanding, oh, the technology already existed, like it made so much more sense mm -hmm. then, right. Um, but knowing also that maybe there's, um, you know, the, the research in terms of trials, I'm using air quotes, and you can't see it, <laughs> is, is also being rushed. Um, I, I love that we have such solid info so far. And also, uh, you know, for me, personally, I'm not going to be able to receive this because of where I fall in terms of prioritization for a very mm -hmm. long time. And so knowing that, okay, you know, yes, it means that that extends the situation of life the way that we have it right now for a while in terms of social distancing and all those things. But it also gives me personally, this is me not giving you a recommendation, um, a little bit of time to kind of, okay, if that's important to you, like I can wait to hear some of that feedback of people over a year or whatever, right? So if I could, my, my decision might also be like, well, okay, whatever. But um, I, I do like that that is still being accumulated and documented and shared and investigated. And so far, we're, we're not seeing some of the things that we're going to discuss in myths about um, the, the supposed risk factors, the science and the facts just aren't there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, for everyone who I also 
fall fairly down the the list of priorities. I I don't even have a guesstimate about when I'll be able to get a vaccine. Um, but if I happened to be one of those people in the right place at the right time and I walk, I mean, I don't walk into a pharmacy, but if I did and they were like, I've got a dose that's about to expire and you're the only person here, do you want it? I would say yes. Um, and so um, I don't want to... Uh, you know, more data obviously is going to help assuage a lot of concerns as the people in the trials are monitored longer and as we monitor the general population. But at the same time, I want to emphasize that there is no indication that long COVID post-vaccine is a thing. And you're going to see that over and over again as we get into the other questions in this show, um, that uh, we know enough now. Like, we ha- like this was not... Um, the the research that was looked at by independent third parties um, was extensive enough. The statistical analysis was appropriate. Every pro- proper procedure was followed um, to bring these to the population. So um, I also kind of want to emphasize, like, we do know enough now. Like, yes, we're going to continue to monitor the situation, but we do know enough now to know that it's safe. Um, and I want to emphasize that. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. And I think that's one of the things about being informed and making decisions and all that kind of stuff. Like you, you might see Sarah and I have slightly different opinions and that's okay. You know what I'm, I just, Mm -hmm. I also want to just say as someone who has had this before, I think my perception is also a little bit different. And I would also say that I would not wish long haulers on anyone. I'm, I have reached out to Sarah so many times to figure out what supplements I can take, what lifestyle factors I can do, what all of these kind of things. And I think one of the hardest things for me, I know you mentioned it, but that feeling of anxiety being increased is something that really affects all the other health issues because it makes it harder for me to sleep, which makes it harder for all these other things, right? And so it's like, this isn't just, oh, I'm feeling a little anxious. This is, I mean, like it, it is truly a problem for much more people than are being talked about because the death toll is what is consistently reported. But I think um, once we get to a place where we've got things under control, you're going to start hearing more news reports of people with these um, long-term health effects that's going to make it be something that you really want to avoid. And if a vaccine decreases, as we know that it does, the effects and all of those kinds of things, like that in and of itself is worth it for me as someone who has experienced it, like would have been, like, I would rather have done that is what I'm trying to yeah. say. So, okay, moving forward. Um, yes. So let's let's talk about the, the long-term damage and then we can wrap up uh, Kristen and Katie's questions. Um, so looking at the clinical trial data, you know, they basically tracked every possible thing that could happen to somebody um, in their vaccine group and the placebo group. And if anything looked like a statistical trend, it was investigated. Um, So um, looking at the the two things that are sort of easiest to measure, the myocarditis, um, there have been some small studies that have shown like 15 to 35% of uh, mild to moderate COVID patients um, might have some inflammation in the heart months out. Um, there was even one study in young college athletes with either mild or asymptomatic cases that showed 15% of them had myocarditis. Again, this is not necessarily permanent heart damage, but it is you know, something that needs to be 
like researchers need to be understanding this. This is something that needs to be understood. So um, Pfizer reported all cardiac adverse events. There were 14 in the vaccine group and 12 in the placebo group. Those are statistically equivalent. Um, and Moderna categorized everything under vascular disorders. They had 149 in the vaccine group, 138 in the placebo group. Again, those are statistically equivalent. In terms of lung damage, uh, Pfizer reported three cases of pneumonia in the vaccine group and five in the placebo group. And Moderna categorized everything under like respiratory, anything that could go wrong, 480 in the vaccine group and 522 in the placebo group. So what that indicates is that um, the there's certainly, that, I mean, what it really indicates is that the only likely long-term effect of getting vaccinated is getting immune to COVID-19, um, which is the good thing that we want is immunity. Um, you know, there, there, there really, you know, is not at this point any indication that um, getting exposed to COVID post-vaccine could result in uh, the type of complications that have been so concerning. Uh, including long COVID or severe tissue damage from microclots. I'm not a big fan of when we talk about this, so I'm ready to move on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the next uh, big category of questions is, is this safe for pregnancy, children, breastfeeding, et cetera? Uh, so Izzy wrote, thank you for covering this topic. I so value both of your perspectives. Are the COVID-19 vaccines shown to be safe for pregnant women and children yet? It has been super unclear in the media. Um, and at Tom, Tom Pry uh, wrote, it would be great to understand if there are any recommendations for breastfeeding people as well. So um, let's break that down. Uh, pregnancy was... Um, not actually, so pregnant, if you were pregnant, you were uh, excluded from the Moderna and Pfizer clinical trials. Um, But there were some people, as we sort of mentioned in part two of the show, there were some people who got pregnant uh, early on during the uh, vaccination process, and they are being followed. So there is very limited human data. Um, The World Health Organization has looked at that data and said that pregnant women can go ahead and get the vaccines. There certainly were extensive um, animal studies done on these vaccines that showed no issues with pregnancy. That's also what the World Health Organization is looking at. Um, But let's kind of look at this data in more detail because we didn't really do that in part two of our show. So uh, with Moderna, they had 13 pregnancies um, that were occurred early on. Uh, six in the vaccine group and seven in the placebo group. Um, there was one case of a uh, miscarriage, spontaneous abortion, it's technically called, in the placebo group. Um, that's that's their outcomes right now. They're still following it up. Um, Pfizer I just want to had... emphasize that was the placebo group. Yes. Yes. Interestingly, Pfizer had the same thing. They had one miscarriage out of, they had uh, 23 participants, um, nine of them withdrew, um, and they had one, again, it was like half and half roughly, and they had one miscarriage in the placebo group. Um, So, you know, right now, again, like these women haven't given birth yet. So, you know, they're being followed, they're being monitored. You know, we've got like less, you know, less than 40 
women totaled. It's not right. That's not a, a rigorous study by by any definition. Um, but right now, nothing has come up. Um, so here's 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 the thing: is that pregnant women are higher risk. Um, they are three to three and a half times more likely to require ventilation and 70% more likely to die from COVID than their age and risk factor matched controls. Now, absolute risk is low. Let's emphasize the absolute risk is still low because these are young, healthy women generally. Um, older, uh, advanced maternal age, I hate that phrase so much. Um, but it, uh, pregnant women 35 to 44 were actually even more at risk, so about four times more likely to require invasive ventilation and about twice as likely to die than non-pregnant women the same age. Absolute risk is low, but pregnancy does seem to put women at higher risk. And um, that is part of the calculus here. Um, the animal data shows that it's safe. Nothing has come up thus far, even though it's a very small number of participants in the vaccines. Um, what the CDC is saying is have a conversation with your doctor. Um, and that's what I'm going to say is, you know, there's really um, incredibly preliminary data to go on. Um, so this is a cost benefit analysis that will have to talk about your uh, potential exposures, uh, your other risk factors, right? So do you also have gestational diabetes or something like that uh, or preeclampsia? Those are going to be additional risk factors, uh, conversation to have with your doctor, but here's the information is that pregnancy puts you at a higher risk and, uh, in a very, very small number of participants, nothing has come up yet as, as a potential problem. But, you know, these people again are <laughs> six or seven months pregnant right now. Again, we're, we're still waiting to find out. In terms of breastfeeding, there's no data on the safety, but, um, breastfeeding is not generally considered uh, a reason to not get a vaccine period. Um, so generally what happens is if your body produces antibodies, those are passed to the infant, um, and provide some partial protection, whether you get those antibodies through a vaccine or a natural infection. So, um, it's generally not considered to be a problem for vaccines. Um, what the CDC is basically saying is that, there's, you know, there's not, it's not thought to be a risk to, to the infant. Um, and then talk to your doctor. So, um, that's, that's what the CDC is recommending. And I, I, you know, can look at the same data and say, or the same lack of data, um, and say, yeah, um, again, have a conversation, but right now, you know, they haven't tested this, um, the COVID-19 vaccines in lactating women, um, but vaccines in general and mRNA vaccines also um, are not thought to be um, problematic. I just want to, as a prior breastfeeding guru, um, I acted as an LC for Lily Chay League um, and breastfed for a decade. Um, one of the things that I find helpful for people to understand is that your um, blood and what is in your blood is different than your milk and what is in your milk. And so one of the things that um, is difficult for people to research about breastfeeding moms is just like kids and, um, you know, young people, pregnant people in general, you never want to do 
tests on breastfeeding people because if there was something, then you would be liable for it. That's why we don't see a lot of tests in these groups. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that they think they're is something wrong. It's just, it presents a higher risk of liability. And so it's often we have to pull information from anecdotal or what those people who are in the vaccine studies, for example, who got pregnant during the study, and who will breastfeed later, like those people will inform information that we'll have in the future, if that makes sense. Um, So I just... I just want to kind of re-emphasize it might be worth, if it were me, what I would be researching is um, the mechanisms of what is um, transferring to the milk. Because what is in your blood, for example, alcohol, right? Like in, (laughs) I used to tell people like, unless you can't walk, you can still breastfeed because the percentage of alcohol that's in your blood is not the same. It doesn't transfer one-to-one to what's in your milk. So, um, this is anything, right? Like anything that you're doing that's breastfeeding, medication, medicine, all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, doctors are are not, they don't, there's not a lot of information in that group because of the way that information comes in. So um, that's what I would be doing. And, you know, I can't give medical advice, but based on what I know about the way that the vaccine works, um, I would have that inform my own personal decision. There. <laughs> like, um, my sister's pregnant and going to breastfeed, and we've talked about what she's going to do, but I'm not, I can't give you personal advice. <laughs> um, so let's talk about where we are with children. Um, so Pfizer, once they had good safety data for 18-year-olds and over, they actually recruited 16 and 17-year-olds for their study. Um, and so they've already tested um, in 16 up to high 90s, um, and showed good efficacy and safety consistent with the adult data. So Pfizer has emergency use authorization for 16 plus. Um, so the 16-year-olds right now um, are able to get the Pfizer vaccine um, if once, once, <laughs> once it's their turn. Um, Pfizer is currently testing 12 to 15-year-olds, and they're fully enrolled. They expect uh, data to come in the summer. Um, Moderna is currently testing 12 to 18 year olds, um, because they only took, uh, I guess over 18 for their, for their adult study. Um, they're hoping to have approval in time for the 2021, 2022 school year for that age group. Um, but they are having trouble, um, filling this study and actually, um, getting enough people enrolled. And actually, when I learned that, I had a conversation with my husband and we submitted, and my daughter, we submitted my daughter's name for the study um, to, I mean, we don't know if she's going to be included or not at this point. Um, But I thought that was important to share. Um, So that uh, ability to recruit enough people could uh, increase the the timeline. So if they are really having trouble filling, filling the that it might not be as early as this fall. Um, once Pfizer and Moderna have data in uh, 12 to well, teenagers, basically, um, 12 and up, then they'll start moving into younger and younger children. They'll do six to 11 and then one to five. For these younger age groups, they go super slow. So they start with a lower dose to be extra cautious. They start separating out the safety versus the efficacy 
um, it's, it's slow and cautious because it's our kids and, um, I want them to be slow and cautious. That's actually, I think a great way to approach it. Um, Moderna doesn't have, they've said they, um, don't expect to have data in children one to 11 until well into 2022. Um, and so for now, you know, we just have to wait, um, for children. So, um, we don't know, we don't know. Um, it's, uh, you know, likely that, Maybe they need a different dose than adults, but, you know, we expect it to work the same. Um, but especially in those younger kids, their immune systems function a little bit differently. And um, we're going to get their slow and uh, steady wins this race for sure. Um, so this is, again, you know, when we talk about these vaccines weren't rushed, they didn't they didn't rush the the safety and efficacy trials. And this is the evidence because we're still we're, we're still nowhere near even starting um, trials in six to 11 year olds. Which makes sense to me. And it's one of the things that, you know, Matt and I talked about a while ago about when we think the kids would go back to school because where we live, it's still entirely virtual. And knowing that the timeline of expected vaccine for children was not until at the earliest late 2021 or early 2022 at the earliest, um, it kind of guided some decisions that we ended up making as parents over the last year. But, you know, I just, I just want to emphasize, I know how difficult it is for everyone, um, especially those people who have children who are affected by this. So uh, I know that's not great news. And I just want to say, you're not alone. Um, we're all feeling um, the frustration. And this is why science and the process is so important so that we can, you know, monitor and ensure that we're not jumping out of a frying pan into the fire with our kids. So uh, speaking of kids, I think there was a question on fertility. A hundred questions. Yes. Um, so this is uh, just part of Karen's question. Um, thank you for the facts without the feelings. I heard my daughters who are in their 20s should not get the vaccine as it might hurt the lining of their placenta when they want to have children. What is the premise of this placenta lining harm? So um, this is one of those myths that sort of um, it's based in a kernel of truth and then it's taken on a life of its own on the Internet. So there is a, a short part of the coronavirus spike protein sequence that has high homology with a placental protein called syncytin-1. Um, and it, because there is this homology, there is always the chance that if we produce an antibody against the spike protein, that it could cross-react. It's called molecular mimicry. It would basically be an autoantibody that could attack this protein in the placenta. However, here's the, here's, that's, where the, that's where the rumor comes from. Here's, here's the, the reels. Um, the antibodies bind to very, very small sequences of amino acids, about 15 to 20 amino acids long. And because of the, um, uh, section that is homologous between these two proteins is so tiny, the chances of us forming an antibody against the spike protein that happens to exactly align with the very, very small segment that's similar to syncytin one are extremely small. Um, so, it's not impossible. It's just extremely unlikely. Um, and it's important to emphasize that there would be the same chance with the vaccine as there would be with natural infection. 
And so far, at least, we are not seeing infertility as a consequence of COVID-19 infection. There has been a uh, drop in um, pregnancies and births, but that is thought to be driven by the economy and quarantine and like behavior, not uh, anything to do with infertility caused by the infections. Um, I should say, um, at least in women, there is some um, early studies showing that there may be some infertility from natural infection in men. Again, natural infection as we're learning, is a different thing than the vaccine. So we we don't have any reason to suspect that the vaccine is going to cause infertility in men either. Um, and that's still early data. Again, you know, it's sometimes it's really hard to decipher what's just stress of, you know, being uh, unemployed or working from home with the kids uh, doing home, you know, virtual school, like, there's a lot going on in our society right now that's unrelated to COVID that still has the potential to harm our health because of how the this global pandemic has um, changed just the day-to-day working of our lives. It's also worth noting that the same homology with Syncytin-1 um, occurs with retroviruses, including HIV, and we don't see infertility via this particular mechanism of autoantibodies against syncytin 1 attacking the placenta in HIV AIDS. So, um, you know, at this point, it's, it, yes, it's an accident that could possibly happen. Um, with autoimmune disease, it's not just the accident of the autoantibody being formed, which would be very unlikely in this situation. It's also the immune system has fail-safes to detect autoantibody formation. Um, and so it's the failure of the fail-safes on top of the accident. So the chances of that happening at this point, we have zero examples, even from a much more rigorously studied infection like HIV, um, which has the same sequence of homology. So um, it, it really seems to be not a concern. I couldn't hit my unmute button fast enough to say I like it when you say it does not appear to be a concern that's, that's my favorite phrase yeah. <laughs> all right I have a, a great question from Dr. Karen Lee um, who wants wanted to explore the potential link between um, the COVID-19 vaccines and autoimmune disease in more detail not just looking at potential for chronic fatigue syndrome So uh, Dr. Karen wrote, I wonder if the vaccine could cause something with no history of autoimmune conditions to trigger an autoimmune response for a lifelong autoimmune condition. I know that this would be hard to tell because of the trial period was so short. So um, I want to take a step backwards in answering this question and talk about past research in other vaccines and uh, that link to autoimmune disease. We talked about this a bit in part one of our show. Um, But I kind of want to get into it in a little bit more detail because there have been over the years like numerous case reports indicating that vaccines were either causing autoimmune flares, um, that they could measurably increase autoantibody levels after the vaccine, at least transiently. Um, There are case reports of, you know, uh, autoimmune diseases um, being triggered. Um, And a case report is... uh, you know, this person was treated and the the treating physician thought it was interesting enough that they wrote it up 
um, as a paper. It's right. It's it's a basically looking at the uh, you know what you know the symptom development, the tests that were done, what the tests look like, uh, what treatment was done, how that resolved or didn't resolve, um, and then that's written up as a paper. Case studies. You know, we talked about this in our. Um, show where we sort of talked about how scientific studies are done and what the the weight of different studies are. Case studies are basically a formalization of an anecdotal report. Um, and so they're, they're not supposed to be proof. They're supposed to be um, background information to help form a hypothesis. So there have been several large-scale prospective studies that indicate absolutely no link between vaccines and autoimmune disease or autoantibody formation. So contrary to this collection, small, relatively small collection of case reports, the prospective studies where you actually, you know, follow, put, randomize people and then follow them have not turned up a connection. Um, so there was, for example, a 2017 um, study that followed military personnel who received a wide range of vaccines. Um, so like far more vaccines all at once than we would ever get <laughs> um, as adults typically. So they received the tetanus, diphtheria, inactivated polio, MMR, chicken pox, meningococcal disease, or meningitis, hep A, hep B, influenza, and typhoid, all of those. Um, and they were generally administered all in the same day in different arms. Um, but in a few of the, the cases, they were a couple up to two weeks apart. They did blood work before they did follow up looking for autoantibodies. They also measured things like ANA, uh, rheumatoid factor, lymphocytes, inflammatory markers, and they even did HLA genotyping, which was really cool because those are major risk factors for autoimmune disease. Um, these military personnel had normal side effects for vaccines. Um, the baseline autoantibody positivity rate was 8.3%. And at their second time period, it was 4.1%. Um, and this actually, you know, this drop in autoantibodies, it's worth mentioning here that autoantibody formation is an accident that happens in everybody. At any given time, if you sampled the population, you would find somewhere between 10 and 30% of the population have autoantibodies. Um, it's the fail-safes that I already mentioned that are the difference between autoantibodies and autoimmune disease. So um, seeing autoantibodies go down, though, is really interesting because uh, it was a statistically significant change. And this is actually falls into where researchers are going now is because a lot of autoimmune disease, not just chronic fatigue syndrome, have infectious triggers or have a link to prior infection. For example, like Epstein-Barr is a very, very common um, infection that has a high correlation with autoimmune disease. Um, but there's lots of different, different, even parasites as well. And so um, what researchers are starting to actually show in the statistics, and again, we need more data, is that vaccination programs may actually reduce autoimmune disease because they're taking out the infection trigger. Um, and some of this data is, um, you know, for example, there's lower rates of type 1 diabetes, which is the autoimmune form of diabetes, in um, following vaccinations in uh, children compared to unvaccinated children, um, and especially actually when the vaccines are given uh, to younger children. So, you know, this, again, 
that this is something that needs to be studied in more depth. Um, but there's actually, it's actually maybe the reverse, not that vaccines in general can cause autoimmune disease, but actually that they can prevent autoimmune disease. It's sort of consistent with the hygiene hypothesis. Um, the idea that our um, immune systems used to be exposed to all these different in infections, parasites, um, and that immunization actually provides like a beneficial type of immune stimulation that helps to helps the immune system to learn not to attack itself. And that it's the too hygienic, not enough exposure to things that might be driving some chronic illness. That's sort of the, that's what the hygiene hypothesis basically states. Again, more studies needed. Um, but that's vaccines specifically. If we look at the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna COVID mRNA vaccines, because that's really the focus of these shows right now, that's what we have all the data on. Um, they did include autoimmune disease sufferers, even those people on disease-modifying drugs. Um, they were enrolled and they were tracked for possible adverse events. Um, and I'm going to talk about the adverse events. So in the Moderna study, there was one 57-year-old with Hashimoto's thyroiditis who was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis 14 days after the second dose of the Moderna vaccine. Um, as regular listeners know, anybody with autoimmune disease know, a lot of things can trigger or ramp up a second or third or fourth autoimmune disease. We tend to collect them like stamps, but not as fun. Um, so it's possible that this was from ramping up out of the immune system. Um, but this was one person out of 30,000 and there was a, um, uh, there were 30, similar, sorry, just to clarify, there were yeah. 30,000 that had already had an autoimmune disease. No, 30,000 total? 30, total. You would, ex um, we're, we don't have, because it, it's not a high risk factor for severe COVID. So it wasn't in either of the studies, um, they didn't do subgroup analysis on autoimmune disease. So we don't have an exact number of how many people, but we expect that it's roughly the same percentage as the general population. So something like 6% of, of the participants probably. Um, there was also an 83 year old who developed polymyalgia rheumatica 15 days after the second dose um, in the placebo group. So um, what we see is one one case in vaccine, one case in placebo, um, that would be considered something that would have been very likely chance or very likely something that would have happened anyways, right? Um, when you see very, very low incidents like that and, um, and similar in vaccine versus placebo. In the Pfizer trial, um, there was one person in the vaccine group that developed colitis. It is not clear if it was autoimmune. So there are non-autoimmune forms of colitis like C. difficile. Um, and that's the only even like possibly autoimmune related adverse event that was reported out of, there was 103 in adverse events, serious adverse events in the vaccine arm and 81 in the placebo arm. Um, and those, it sounds like you're like 103. That sounds like a bigger number. This included things like car accidents, overdoses, and broken legs. Um, so there, if you look at them, there's there's no um, individual thing that there's a signal for um, a, 
an adverse event that was potentially caused by the vaccine. So um, basically, there's no statistical difference in in adverse events. And that's, you know, out of the Pfizer um, trial was even bigger, right? It was like 46,000 people. So one person here, one person there, one vaccine or two in vaccine between the two, between the 75,000 people between these two studies, one person in placebo, it's, it's not a signal. It's, it's not, it's not something that you can point to. Um, and, uh, and so that's, I mean, we just, it doesn't look like it right now. Um, what about the timeline? Cause that was part of Dr. Karen's question specifically. If you look at, um, you know, vaccine-induced injury, which we talked about in part one of this series. Um, we didn't really talk about the time frame, but uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an autoimmune disease that can be triggered from the flu vaccine, the risk of it peaks um, within the first two to three weeks. Um, and in um, it's also helpful to sort of reiterate that um, the risk, the new science really shows that the risk is about similar from the flu vaccine as it is from the flu. Um, so there's uh, thoughts actually that the flu vaccine could be preventing cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, and we talked about idiopathic thrombocytopenia, um, which is also autoimmune following the MMR vaccine. Recall in that show, the risk from rubella is actually much higher than the risk from the MMR vaccine, but that risk is only seen within six weeks of vaccination. So given that those are vaccine-induced injury that are autoimmune in nature, that we have a, a good collection of data about because they're from vaccines that have been around for a long time, two months, which is the amount of time that these studies went on um, for the initial, before the emergency use authorization procedure could be started. Um, we're now, there's almost six months of data now. Um, that's considered ample time for an autoimmune disease to show up as a potential adverse effect. Um, if you think about how the immune system works and how, um, you know, if the vaccine, uh, you know, triggers an immune response, there's sort of this initial like two to three weeks of an adaptive response, then there's a long tail as things go down and go back down to normal. Um, while memory cells are being produced, eventually they stop circulating and they go and hang out in the spleen to be activated whenever they're going to be needed. There's, there's not an understanding in uh, autoimmune disease pathogenesis research of any kind of infection triggering autoimmune disease during that long tail. You would expect it to be uh, in, that in that part of time where the immune system is really activated. So there's not even a mechanism for, in looking at natural infection, for understanding how there could be a link between some kind of immune stimulation um, related to an infectious agent, whether that's through natural infection or a vaccine, and uh, the trigger of autoimmune disease that far out. It's the, the temporal link is, is generally much, much closer within a few weeks. I just want to like call out how fascinating I find the um, comparison of a placebo group, placebo group to regular. And I know that this is like basic science, but when we talk about it, my mind is always blown because at first I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, yeah, someone had an autoimmune reaction after they received 
the vaccine and my brain immediately starts going to, oh, it was after the second dose. I heard the, you know, immune response is greater Mm -hmm. in that one. And, you know, like my brain just starts going. And I know that that is where a lot of these concerns and myths come from. And then it's like, okay, now let's look at the science. There was also one person that had a similar reaction in the placebo placebo group and out of 30,000 we had one on each side and then my brain is like well statistically that's nothing (laughs) you know what I mean so it's like I I don't know if everybody else is kind of like having that brain explosion but I just want to point this out as an example of what we see in you know the news I'm using quotation marks (laughs) we see reported um, on social media or called out on some sort of news sources like that one person right and it's like look at what happened and what I appreciate about the science and the facts piece is like okay but we also need to have like a full picture perspective on what this means and so I hope that this example is something that you can extrapolate to a lot of the hyperbolic responses that you get from people who take one fact that is a fact. It is not incorrect that this person had an additional autoimmune disease reported after the vaccine. But do you still have the same perspective when you hear that there was also one person on the placebo side and that's it? You know, to me, I have a much different feeling about that after I have facts. Yeah, I mean, you can think of it this way. I mean, the idea is you want to represent the general population in these clinical trials because you want to know that it's safe for everybody. That's why they do things like subgroup analysis to make sure um, that they're getting a good cross-section of people. And um, and so just think about, like, if you take any random group of 75,000 people and follow them for a year, how many of them are going to have a bad health thing happen? That is what they're tracking with these, except that, you know, half of them they injected with something, right? But they're they're basically, that's the whole point of the placebo group is to decipher what is related to the intervention, in this case, the vaccine, and what is just chance, um, obviously bad, bad luck. Um, but, you know, that's, and that's also why they're reporting things like, they're reporting every, they tracked every a single broken leg. possible thing. <laughs> like, how broken does that leg, have to do with the vaccine? Um, yeah. There was like a drug overdose in one, you know, like they're, they, they're tracking all of, all of the possible things. Um, even things that, you know, there's, there's no way my brain could link a vaccine to a broken leg, right? But if they showed a signal in the broken leg group, that would be a okay. Let's let's find the mechanism. What's what's happening? Maybe people are getting clumsy from this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. right. Like we'd we'd investigate that. So, um, you know, it's it's important to understand that um, they're not. It's not like they're taking this group of like a hundred percent perfectly healthy. You know a really uniform group of people. They're trying to represent the the general population. That means they're representing all of our very average health and all of the different types of health conditions that we're already diagnosed with that are going to crop up. Like it's, you know, it's just a, it's a representation of um, how often things go bad in a, in a sample of people that represent the general population with how our society is now in terms of health. All right. I know that we are at the point in the show where we try to 
leave because we're trying to be respectful of all of our times. So this might be your intermission to go do something else and come back to the rest of the show. We have a number of other uh, questions and myths that we want to address. I just want to acknowledge and recognize that we are intentionally going over a little bit on this, not a little bit, but I mean, hopefully not too long, but we're intentionally going a bit longer than we normally go because we've already had two shows on this and Sarah and I need the sanity of kind of like having a breather and being done. So we're going to push through. If you need to pause the show, I'm going to have Matt interject a little doo-doo-doo. Yeah, a little intervention music. Yeah. Matt here. Just so everyone is aware, this show ended up being two hours and 18 minutes. So I pulled an executive decision and decided that no one wanted to listen to two hours in a row. So this will be the end of part one, and next week you will hit part two, where there is plenty of more fun stuff to listen to. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. do a better job of not making the day that we record the podcast the day that I wash my hair because wearing the headset on like hair that I'm trying to dry yeah yeah not ideal no it's not great I've been really struggling because I I wash my hair like once a week now because the the standards are just so much lower during the pandemic um but also that's kind of how much I washed it before um but it's like, I've been showering in the evenings because I, after walking the dog, I try to get working as fast as I can, um, so that I don't waste my like super high energy, super focused morning, but I don't want to go to bed with wet hair. And I'm certainly don't want to bother blow drying my hair before going to bed, but my hair's almost down to my waist now because also pandemic, I haven't had it cut in over a year. And so like, it's a, it's a project now. And now, you know, like, remember the oldie timey excuse of like, I can't, I'm washing my hair. That's literally my life now. Like the day that I have to wash my hair, it's like, whatever, whatever else is going on. This is, this is like at least like a three hour long project now. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's journey, the free to play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.